I'm Monica Perez, and today we have a returning guest, a real fan favorite, Robert Frederick of the Hidden Life is Best podcast, where he delves layer by layer into the life and work of Francis Bacon, the smartest man who ever lived, trademark, who may have been the single greatest influence on the modern world. So strap on your tanks. We are going deep with a dive master. Hello, Robert. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Hi, Monica. Great to see you again. It's a pleasure. And I just want to say I adore your podcast. I listen to each episode at least twice. Wow, but great. I haven't seen one come across my screen in a while. What's up? Yeah, I got I got a little lost in the weeds. I I didn't have enough massive topics like the history of the British Empire and the Tudor family and the history of science and more. I had to try to understand Kabbalah because for the occult angle to Francis Bacon's life, the Kabbalah keeps coming up. And I dove deep into the Kabbalah and I just got lost. It's just so... Not not easy so, to encapsulate in one hour. <laughs> it's it's really hard, but I, a lot of people do get driven crazy by Kabbalah. They think they're the Messiah. That's that's kind of like a a theme that runs through the history of the Kabbalah right up until the present day, where the the Hasidics in Brooklyn think Rabbi Schneerson is the Messiah, but he's dead. But they put up signs around New York like Messiah is here. Wow. Dead guy. Yeah, and they're heavily into Kabbalah. Interesting. All right. So we will wait until once you do that show, once you put that podcast out, <laughs> then you have to come back and okay. and trans. I'll listen to it like three times and sure. then we can talk about it again. But I would say anyone who has not already listened to the Hidden Life is Best podcast, it is you are really in for a treat. If you have a couple of days off, you want to clean out the garage or something, like just strap <laughs> on your phone and listen to that whole thing beginning to end. It's really, really fantastic. I love it. So um, thank you. So here we are. You are going to let's I think we're probably going to cover some of the topics that you've researched for the episodes that are already out, although okay. never have we like been so comprehensive as I think we're hoping to do today. So you want to start by just telling us a little bit about Francis Bacon, his role in the British Empire, uh, Shakespeare, sure. of course, you know, just give us some of that backstory. Sure. So Francis Bacon seems to pop up everywhere the more you poke around at the beginning of the British Empire. He he had an extraordinary life, most of which stayed hidden. But what's acknowledged about him is extraordinary. Like, for instance, he's credited with being the birth of the Enlightenment era, which is the whole era we're still using as most of the the foundation for our culture. So the Enlightenment era came after the Renaissance which came after the Middle Ages, which Bacon, the Tudor London at that time was still, a lot of it was Middle Ages. So he, he saw this whole Enlightenment movement, you know, as a very young man, like at the age of 15, his, his ideas about life were pretty much set. But at the time he was 15, when he dropped out of college, pronouncing Plato and Aristotle as like, not good enough. Can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. So I always thought about the Enlightenment, you know, the way I was taught in school, like it was the dawning of rational thought, of yeah. proof, of of yeah. even laissez-faire, you know, yeah. market systems. And I thought it was this moment when 
the you know fetters of the church were decoupled yeah. from the from the people and they came into their own because they weren't owned by king or pope and i'm starting to think that that is not the truth about the enlightenment is that what do you think well it's supposedly true but all that started with bacon supposedly because he he tried to separate out magic from science he tried to strip alchemy away from science because science at the time was heavily involved with esoteric symbolism and alchemy and secrecy but and you occult just, powers. But you just said that he, the Enlightenment was already beginning by the time he was 15. Is that... No, no, no. He, he, he's credited with starting the Enlightenment okay, later. Okay, I thought so. Okay, right. In his uh, 40s. He didn't really start writing any books of philosophy until his 40s. Okay, so I was, and, that was my understanding yeah, from yeah, listening yeah, he, to you in the past, yeah, but I just wanted to yeah, clarify that yeah, point. Yeah, sorry, I wasn't clear. Yeah, no problem. Okay, so, so yeah. very so interesting. With yeah. Starting the Enlightenment, which you'll see everywhere, not consciously starting the Enlightenment, but it goes back to him with most people. He was also a great lawyer, one of the greatest lawyers of all time. He was Attorney General of England. And uh, that was his daytime life. And there's some controversy at the end of his life, but he also argued for uh loaning money at interest saying 10 percent is a good fair and a good rate and that came back in the whole kind of like modern banking loaning money at interest he was he influenced that and he uh, he was involved in everything writing of mass and hanging out with the king and he was very involved in the court and he was also very involved with espionage and military intelligence since he was 15 years old, they sent him on a spying mission to France and an information-gathering mission to France. And the thing to know about that era, of, or it's called the early modern era of London and the Tudor era, is that pretty much everyone was spying on everyone else all the time. And they developed spycraft to like such a high degree. And the all of England was basically a surveillance state because they had a network of spies everywhere. Everyone worked for someone gathering information. They were paid for it. And you have to be really, really smart to be a good spy. And the man who's credited with starting British intelligence is Francis Walsingham. But Bacon really is the secret ingredient with how it got to be uh, enlarged from just spying, but to also creating culture via theater. But in fact, Francis Walsingham, the spy genius, actually had his own theater company. So right away, military intelligence was involved in theater and creating culture. Yeah, it's really mind-blowing. And then Francis Bacon took it to the next level such that he created the greatest playwright of all time, who still has an enormous influence on our culture and especially on England. But before we get to that, I have a question. Okay, go ahead. So, uh, first of all, I feel like if you're going to talk about Shakespeare, it does dovetail with yeah. the spying stuff in yep. that that's how you know Shakespeare would. You've pointed this out before. Would never have known the inside of a court. Right. in Italy. But of course, this guy would, and he would have known it young yeah. if he was out on these missions. It's also must yeah. be why you use the Bond music in your show, which yeah. I love. Yeah. I absolutely love that. Yeah. But you're blowing my mind already because yeah. 
I watch, you know, my show is called The Propaganda Report. I, yeah. I absorb all this yeah. media and I look into it and I think to myself, like, how far back does it go? Like, yeah. should we never have had, like, is it, I, and I always kind of, I stop at radio. Like, as soon as there was yeah. radio, like, that was the beginning yeah. of propaganda. But you're yeah. making me think that Shakespeare, oh. Bacon, theater was the beginning of propaganda yeah. Oh, yeah. and he was the Gnostic guy and the spy. And it's just, that yeah. is blowing my mind. Like that germ is all in one seed. Yeah. Wow. It all goes back to him. I'm sure you could take it back to the Roman empire too, but they worshiped the Roman empire. It's probably where he got the idea. It's probably how he knew. Of course. How, and Greeks how, maybe. Yeah. Greeks too. Greeks. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're right. No, you're totally opening up my mind as a person who like was, self-taught i miss all yeah. the big picture yeah. sometimes but he it's not what's funny is it's acknowledged by every shakespeare scholar that shakespeare was propaganda for the tudor family because he wrote 10 history plays and they're all so ridiculously pro-tudor that it just obvious it's almost laughable sometimes now because they're kind of crude they were meant for you know popular culture they're almost parts of them are are almost kind of silly and buffoonishly pro Tudor, which was something very important to do because uh, you know kings were constantly being overthrown. But it worked so well that Queen Elizabeth served for forty five years during you know really difficult time where Catholics and Protestants were killing each other, and so right in the midst there would be Catholic revolutionaries trying to overthrow the queen. Uh, but they kept the people together partly with the theater. They also used pageantry and ceremony. And there was a dispute as to whether she was the correct heir. Yeah. Yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, there was her sister, um, uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, who had a claim to the throne. So they had to chop her head off, which they they entrapped her. They, the, the spy agency trapped her into a fake plot to kill Elizabeth and then killed her on the evidence that they sort of created. They got someone to like do it. It was entrapment basically, although it was real. The guy really was a Catholic and he really did want to overthrow Elizabeth. They saw the whole thing and they just let it happen. They got her to, to read this letter and they, that's why they chopped her head off. So her own, so Elizabeth chopped her sister's head off. And didn't, didn't Mary's son, eventually take the throne yes yeah and so that's yeah. like just kind of proves Crazy. you know yeah. i know it was a different way of secession i read a book yeah. called mary yeah. queen of scots by stefan zweig who uh -huh. is a great although i think a little embellished like in the old style of biographies uh -huh. but i did it was a really really readable highly recommend he's such a great writer but then i thought well that kind of validates a, a little bit of the secession issue not secession, succession issue. Yeah. And uh, and the fact that she could have kept her seat on the throne for that long under those circumstances yeah. Yeah. is definitely a testament either to, uh, you know, Machiavellian ship or complete um, brutal pure, pure dictatorial or propaganda. Like there are different ways yeah. to keep that your seat there. They were brilliant. Yeah. yeah. They were brilliant. They They managed to do that in real time under very difficult circumstances. And everything he wanted to have happen pretty much came true. I mean, there were problems. And eventually this Stuart line that Mary was lost the crown and got exiled to France. And they're the Jacobites. 
who had a big hand in the French Revolution. And so there was kind of a split in the in the crown and within Freemasonry too, which I'm not too clear on. That's another huge topic. But yeah, there, so there was some division. But apparently Francis Bacon predicted the coming civil war. So right after he died about, he died in 1626, there was a civil war, which, which is the whole Oliver Cromwell story. Uh, and and King Charles, uh, James Stuart's son, lost his head. And uh, but it was eventually restored. The the Stuart line was restored, and they lost it again. But that's the whole succession line of the English royalty, which is fascinating, which I never cared about. And now I'm obsessed with it, sort of. Right, right. It seems totally boring and whatever you go to England yeah. and you find a book that's just like got a list of names <laughs> and it's just awful. But knowing this, that, I mean, when you can trace so much of modernity back to Francis yes. Bacon. Right there to the Tudors yes. specifically, which is why people are fascinated with them. People are fascinated with Henry VIII, of course, and, and Queen Elizabeth, who had this image as the Virgin Queen. In fact, Virginia is named for her as the Virgin Queen. And that was where the first settlement in America was for the English, was in Jamestown, uh, 1609. And Francis Bacon had a huge impact on the empire because, of course, he was uh, on the colony because, of course, he was interested in building the empire. And that was really their first big move uh, of building the empire or building colonies. Um, so there's so much to say about Queen Elizabeth. You could go on and on and on. Of course, she wasn't a virgin. And in fact, the evidence seems to be overwhelming that Francis Bacon is actually her secret son. You really believe that? I absolutely believe that. Did he have children? No, he was homosexual. He married. He married a 13-year-old girl. Well, she was almost 14. Ugh. Yeah. At the age of 44 or thereabouts. Oh. After his mother had died, his his adopted mother or his actual uh, biological Queen Elizabeth mother. had right, died. Right. His mother was still alive. His I don't know what to say. Adopted his mother. Yeah, his adopted mother was still alive. Now they she he was was he known to be adopted or not? Oh no, no. Okay, okay. There were rumors. There were plenty right. of rumors, but you didn't talk about it. And his dad was a courtier. Yes, his dad was one of the most powerful men in England, his adopted dad. Right. Um, the Bacon. Well, who would be the name. real dad, though? Real dad was this guy named uh, Robert Dudley. Oh, yes. I that Elizabeth had known since she was a, a child. And the two had been imprisoned in the Tower of London together when Bloody Mary took the throne and threw Elizabeth in prison for apparently planning to overthrow Bloody Mary. Dudley's family had tried to overthrow Bloody Mary, and he was in the tower too. He's lucky he's still alive. His father lost his life. They're the Northampton clan. There was like a ton but, of beheading, right? Like a, a, oh my God. a friend of mine has like some family history that goes all the way back, and she's like, you wouldn't believe how many people were beheaded. <laughs> yeah. Really? Is that like a normal thing? Well, Elizabeth's mother lost her head and oh, one yeah. of her stepmothers. From her father. I mean, she oh, yeah. she sat at the foot of the master. She knew what had to be done. She was not nearly as brutal as Henry VIII or or Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary, not nearly, but she was. And if you talked about something you weren't supposed to talk about, you could lose your tongue. You could lose 
an ear. They, it was, what I mean, it was still kind of medieval, dark ages stuff. They would just cut your tongue out. Didn't have to do that too often. And plus, most people couldn't write or read, so stuff didn't get written down. And losing and your within, tongue would be bad. <laughs> and within the little coterie, within the royalty, you know, secrets were made to be kept, and they, they were kept, just like today. Like, huge secrets get, get kept. They were state secrets, and you all kind of were in on this together. So what would it benefit you to, to talk about this stuff? But there are lots and lots of clues. You can go to the website and find links to people that have really dug in. Like there's letters from Spanish ambassador back to the Spanish king talking about uh, Elizabeth being pregnant. Also, the circumstances of Francis Bacon's birth was literally right next door to the palace of Queen there's, Elizabeth, Whitehall Palace, right next door. There are correspondences that refer to her pregnancy? Yeah. Yeah, from it has the Spanish to be ambassador. Obliquely, right? I mean, it can't be like, oh, the queen's pregnant. It has to be something like she's gained some well, weight. <laughs> diplomatic letter. <laughs> There's even a portrait of her. It's called the pregnancy portrait. Oosh. Which is hanging in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York right now because there's a huge exhibit on the Tudors with paintings of them all and Fung. their Ooh. rugs and some of their art. What the and hell? It's funny that it's they put that crazy. portrait up. And they're, they're not calling it the pregnancy portrait. They're saying, oh, we don't, we've decided we don't know who this is. So why did you put it in with the Yeah, family? right. But, but my whole crowd says it's the pregnancy portrait. And you could find a whole essay on it on YouTube from one of the Bacon researchers. And it sure looks like Elizabeth and it sure looks like she's pregnant. <laughs> and there were lots of rumors at the time. And there's a wow. lot of uh, circumstantial evidence. Interesting. And the fact that he, you know, he 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 felt like royalty. He acted like royalty. I think he wanted to be king. I think other people within the the royalty within the courtiers wanted him to be king. And that's why he married. I was told by one of the most well-known Bacon researchers that the reason he married was to show he did not want to be king because he married a commoner. So therefore, automatically, you can't be king if you marry a commoner. Right. So he married a commoner who had some money. Who was 13. Who was 13. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. And who late in life- At least he was homosexual. <laughs> she was safe. That was well known too. There were lots of rumors about that. His brother was home sexual who also was a spy anthony bacon and he, so james uh, bond was gay <laughs> no james bond was actually john d oh john, john d, d like the, the occultist yeah oh. john d's name and his secret letters back to queen elizabeth was 007 interesting which is a seven with allies but that's where 007 comes from james bond of 007. course because what's his name? The writer was heavily into the occult. Uh, Ian Fleming? Ian Fleming. And he knew all about John Dee. John Dee's getting very famous, but it has always been well known. And he's really where the occult stuff comes in. And was it and real? Like, stuff. did the occult stuff have power or was it like a psyop? Well, that's that's a whole other question. <laughs> all right. Sorry. Sorry. Can't, stay on track. Tell me whatever you want. You know, can they really communicate with demons and angels? Do you believe in that? I don't know. That's a whole big question that I have. I have touched on in the podcast. It's yes, yes. Macbeth about. is full of that stuff, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, so uh, sorry, but I mean, so the, I have you here. I have no, to ask you my questions. The there's there's <laughs> too much to talk about with this. <laughs> keep going. You can go keep going. off into the weeds in any direction. So, all right. So he, uh, what else to say about Francis Bacon? Secretly, he's credited with starting the Rosicrucians, which is another huge topic: Rosicrucianism. And we have to do a show on that. A fascinating group which I believe is where the whole transhumanist movement began because they wanted to conquer death. So they was weren't their, Catholic? That was their main goal. I thought they were Catholic. No, they, they were not Catholic because they were Protestant mm. in England and Germany. Supposedly came out of Germany, but it's obvious that Francis Bacon had a lot to do with it. And they did talk about Jesus, but no, they were against the Pope. They were okay. staunchly against the Pope. Oh, so yeah. they're not the Templars. No. Oh, the Templars, Templars were Catholic. Became the Freemasons. Yeah, Templars were Catholic. Right. Okay. Templars became the Freemasons, which Francis Bacon is credited with beginning by a number of researchers. And the Temple and the Freemasons revolve around theater. They have this whole initiation process, which is theatrical. They actually do the same little short play over and over and over again. Three of them for three initiations. And it's kind of like participation theater. So theater was used not only for building and solidifying the English people for empire, but it was also used to solidify the Freemasons into this very cohesive but loosely arranged secret society. The most successful cult so of all time, I think, by far, which it's, it's tough to call it a cult, but... Uh, it's, it has very similar aspects to cults. So participatory theater seems to yeah. me there's a fine line between that and ritual. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's just a ritual. ritual because I do Absolutely. know that Masons have rituals. Yeah. Initiation rituals. And there's probably dozens of them, but there were three, the first three degrees. Okay. Uh, if you can't go there. Those, you're, you're a Freemason. <laughs> but Bacon's involved with starting Freemasonry, which is just a an enormous thing. And the evidence that the Knights Templars morphed into the Freemasons is absolutely overwhelming, pretty much agreed to by a majority of researchers. And that to me is mind blowing because the Templars have this crazy whole story, another huge topic. And for them to morph into Freemasonry secretly, which is really just now coming to light uh, in the last 30 or 40 years or so is to me, just mind blowing because they had enormous amounts of power and money and influence and they were shut down by the Catholic Church. And there's sort of since that time been almost a revenge motive on the church, which makes me wonder about the burning of Notre Dame. If that wasn't some final, wow. okay. final attack on the church, which I, I'm not saying that's true, but it did cross my mind. Well, that was... Know. I, I knew with that, I was like, the one thing that will tell me it was an inside job is if they uh -huh. saved the art. Mm -hmm. And somebody sent me an article like, oh, by coincidence, they had moved all the art out the day before. <laughs> I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. I figured it was just some like satanic death of, uh, you know, death of Catholics. But it, when you talk about Masons and Catholics, the Catholics hate the Masons, but the Masons have also infiltrated the Catholic Church. I feel like yeah. that that's Absolutely. a two-way street for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The Catholics said we're not allowed to become Freemasons. Yeah, that may still clear. be true. 
Yeah, you're not supposed to right. as a Catholic, but it's pretty clear the Masons penetrated the Catholic Church deeply. Definitely. But that is another thing. And that will do Kabbalah and all that. Put that aside. But let's get back to Shakespeare. So Shakespeare became, because of Bacon's brilliance, Shakespeare was used also, it has become kind of like a cover for England. So when you think of England to this very day, you think of Shakespeare within five minutes. I think it's almost impossible. To think about England without without thinking about Shakespeare, and it gives them a cover of kind of civility and high art and great intelligence and this myth that it was a country lad who came to London to become one of the greatest writers of all time is useful for that because it just makes it look like wow you know what a cool what a cool place where that could happen. Of course, that didn't happen. And that is now widely agreed upon. It took 400 years, but it's been conclusively proven by a Diana Price and her new new aspects of the Shakespeare authorship problem book and video, which you can find on YouTube, where she really did the legwork and she showed that there's absolutely not one shred of evidence that William Shakespeare had had anything to do with writing those plays. But all the other plays, rights of that time, there's strong evidence. There's payment receipts or actual manuscripts or proof of people talking to them about their plays, whereas Shakespeare was completely silent. There's not one letter to him or from him. Uh, there's there's uh, uh, no manuscripts, of course. There, nobody in Stratford knew he was a writer. And this has been talked about you know, since the mid-1800s. And Mark Twain wrote a whole book about it. There's a brilliant adaptation of it on YouTube called Is Shakespeare Dead? It's hilarious, of course, because it's Mark Twain. So people have known, and actually from the very beginning, uh, very, very beginning, the first poem ever published by Shakespeare called Venus and Adonis, tongue started wagging like, this sounds like bacon was involved. <laughs> so, really? so people knew, yeah, right away, Harston, this guy named Marston, I think, Marston and Hall wrote poems back and forth. Marston, people yeah. Talk, people talked to each other through poetry. And then, and playwriting at the time became like, oh, you know, the thing to do and attending plays, sort of like kids make videos today on YouTube or TikTok. It was like everybody who had some money had, a, had their own uh, group of actors and, and wrote plays or was involved in plays, but nobody cared who wrote them. Actors got famous. Nobody cared about writers, just like today. I challenge anyone to name three television script writers. They know a hundred shows and a hundred actors, but I can name one, like Simon, right, who wrote The Wire. Yeah, I, I want to say more. the guy who does Law and Order. I know his name, but I don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but you, you but the songwriters are the ones who make the money, right? I think. I think. Oh, the writers of the TV shows? No, I believe that songwriters, for example, which I think is similar, oh. I believe that they may be unknown, but I do think they have a, get big bucks for the good songs. Oh, well, songwriters are kind of more 
famous. You know, everybody. Oh knows yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Neil Young, Joni yeah. Mitchell. So it Bob isn't Dylan, the same. All, yeah. All yeah, that's true because like the even bad songwriters can be bad singers and still make it. Like Willie <laughs> Nelson and Hank Williams. You know, you know that Dolly Parton writes her songs. Yeah. So that's yeah. your. You're, that's a good point. So you're right. It's the it's the writers of these plays, TV plays. We whatever. don't know them. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. We don't know them, and the same at that time. That's why nobody cared. Who wrote all these plays? Oh, it was William Shakespeare, whatever. And it wasn't because of the Civil War and and the upheaval. It wasn't until literally a hundred years later that someone said, Who was this William Shakespeare? Let me go to Stratford. And all they had was this thing called the first folio, one of the this amazing book that contained all 36 plays known at the time and some poems. That came out three years before Francis Bacon died in 1623. It's a very famous book. There's supposedly 400 copies left. It costs about $10 million. It's got all the plays, and it's got a little sort of vague biography of Shakespeare in there that hints that he came from Stratford, which this guy named William Shakespeare did come from Stratford and did come to London and was involved in the theater as an actor and part owner of the globe. But apparently he couldn't read or write as <laughs> most people could not read or write in those days, but he had, he provided a really convenient cover. He made a lot of money because he was paid and they changed his name. And this is again, kind of an occult reference to Bacon's uh, beliefs. His name was Shakespeare. But Bacon changed it to Shakespeare because his muse was the goddess Athena who held a spear and shook it at ignorance. She was known in the statue outside of Athens that the spear would glint in the sun and appear to shake. So Shakespeare is her shaking her spear, which is a reference to some of his, you know, metaphysical beliefs with Apollo and Athena. Folds right in. It, it all fits in. So there was kind of an inside joke there. But nobody really cared to investigate it further. And they just built up this myth of, of Shakespeare from Stratford that became a cash cow. And it wasn't until 1850 when a woman named Delia Bacon, who was also a writer and lived in New York for a while, lived on the East Coast, was friends with Nathaniel Hawthorne and I think Emerson, and she wrote a great book that Francis Bacon must have written these plays. And she started this whole thing that set in motion hundreds of researchers and hundreds of people to become obsessed with it, like I have. Some to some very funny, crazy stories, but some to some serious intellectual pursuits. And there's the Francis Bacon Society of England that's been doing this for 150 years. They put out a, a very smart, very well-made journal every every few months for 150 years. There's, there's a few other societies too. that, And then it was kind of fashionable to think that Bacon wrote it, even some court cases. So there's a whole history of the Francis Bacon authorship story. And it's kind of shifted now to the Earl of Oxford. There's a whole group of people that really think the Earl of Oxford must have written it, which I think he was involved. I think it was a group project. But now we're getting into the Shakespeare authorship question, which is another huge topic. Right, but, but I think but, we just want to yeah, you, go ahead. Yeah, you want to stay with the theater is, and I, I wrote down that there's something is still a cover. Is Shakespeare a cover? Like what were you, Yes. I heard you say that. Because 
for instance, um, King Charles, the new King Charles, addressed English Parliament for the first time uh, just a few weeks ago. And William Ramsey sent me this uh, video. And within 30 seconds of his first address to Parliament, he name drops Shakespeare. And he says something like, as William Shakespeare said of the first Elizabeth, you know, she will reign in our hearts forever. Something like that. Right. And what would be why? You know, like what? And why would he say yeah, that? Why grab that? that? Shakespeare's a cover. Like you yeah. can't you can't think of England without thinking of Shakespeare. And you don't think of these kind of bloody conquerors, like some of the most the most vicious empire of all time. They did you know, they're just the biggest, most successful empire of all time. You don't get with a raised pinky having, you know, cucumber sandwiches and tea in the garden. You know, you you conscript people, you enslave people, you murder people, you corrupt people. And the only you, one who gets the handle bloody is the one that Elizabeth first was. Yeah, it's always the women, by. yeah, bloody Mary, just like Macbeth, Lady Macbeth takes the heat for the whole but thing. But it's not not a real part of the royal mythos. No. no, it's really Freemasonry, the secret societies, the men, the army, you know, getting the Irish to do a lot of their fighting. I think they were called the wild geese, like kind of enslaving the Irish. I mean, what they did to the Irish is shocking. And it happened right during that Tudor era. Was that the Oliver the Cromwell era? Cromwell did it too. And I'm not that familiar with what he did, but I know like, People like uh, Earl of Essex. It was right during Francis Bacon's time in London when Elizabeth was queen. Um, who's the guy that wrote the Fairy Queen? Uh, famous poet. He's supposedly the second best poet of the time after Shakespeare. I uh, can't believe I'm forgetting his name. Henry Purcell. He was an, Purcell was the composer. Oh. Oh, gosh, who wrote The Fairy Queen? It'll come to me in a minute. Okay. He was in Ireland slaughtering the Irish, like horrible. Oh, Edmund Spencer? Massacres. Spencer. I'm doing your like research for you. I don't know Thank these things. Thank you. I actually. should have written this all down. Uh, I just, I it's not that I know it off the top of my head is what I'm saying. <laughs> He's very well known. People study him in college. Uh, he was actually a brutal military commander slaughtering the Irish. So some people don't think he wrote The Fairy Queen, which is extremely dense, erudite, occult-themed, astro astrological and alchemical theme, recreation of kind of the Rosicrucian uh, Red Cross Knight pay on to Elizabeth, yeah, who's the Fairy Queen, and she's being worshipped by these 12 knights. And it seems impossible that he could have written it, but he's given credit for it. It is very dense, dense, dense stuff. But if you look at it as an occult masterpiece, it starts to make more sense. But he was slaughtering the Irish. He thought the Irish were cockroaches. He's on record as saying that. You could look up his Wikipedia page, Edmund Spencer, author of The Fairy Queen. Horrible, horrible atrocities to the Irish, who they eventually got to be their soldiers in these foreign wars because they were so poor. The only job they could take was... Uh, as a soldier for the English. And that's the kind of, you know, malevolent genius, Machiavellian genius that, that they possess. They sent the Irish <clears throat> all over the world to India, Australia, you know, conquering. And the extent of the English empire was just incredible. 
And I think they were also brilliant. And now, obviously, Francis Bacon didn't have anything to do with, with this, but they realized that it all came down to trade. And they're the ones with this uh, free trade insistence on free trade, why they forced the English to buy their opium, uh, forced the Chinese to buy their opium, forced Japan to open their doors. They would not allow Japan to stay isolated. You know, they bombed them so that they had to trade. You had to trade because they knew with via trade, they could exert some kind of alchemical magic on things. And that's why London is still the financial capital of the world. And maybe tied with New York, but I've read this before that just think about it for this to be an empire based on, you know, this tiny place. Actually, I was just speaking yeah. to David Icke. I, I know you commented yeah. on that on, on Twitter, but he's doing a documentary called Albion Heart of the World, which is coming out on Christmas. And I'm really interested in that uh -huh. because yeah. it's about how could this be the most lasting, yeah. most global empire ever when it's a tiny speck of land. Yeah. And it is, and I grew up learning, my dad was in the Navy and he said like, no, no country has ever dominated the world without a strong Navy. And I'm starting to think that yeah. that was actually an yeah. intentional thing that the English did. And of course, without yeah. the land mass, you have to have trade because they just couldn't yeah. feed their army. And if you're going to, you're going to conquer the world, you need outposts where you can resupply. So they would have yeah. intentionally made free trade, uh, you know, a, a yeah. thing of moral value. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a, there's a researcher who's, who's in on this, whose name I'll send you, maybe you can put it in the show notes. He, he understands this and he understands that it's really England behind the turmoil in the world. It kind of looks like it's the United States and it is partly us, but England's always, always there too. Like the thing with Russia now, Russia and Ukraine, like England really cheerleaded for that. And the Iraq war, Tony Blair couldn't stop pushing for it. Like, they're always, always involved when you see trouble somewhere in the world. 95% of the time you can trace it back to England. It's incredible because they want to control the whole world. Talk about this whole globalist movement here. That is what the English wanted. They wanted to dominate the world. And it's, it happened and it's still happening. It's incredible. And you can really trace it back to John Dee and Francis Bacon and Shakespeare's a big reason why they've been so successful. Well, because they seem like such lovely people. That's a great point. And <laughs> I do I, I do credit Rhodes, Cecil Rhodes, for oh, yeah. kind of like being a relay, like <clears throat> uh, magnifying sure. that impulse and adapting it to where it wasn't so in your face. Like it would that say over a hundred years ago, things were changing yeah. enough. And one of the things that is useful is to go and tell people that they're ruling themselves. You look at yeah. the colonial style of the English versus the Spanish. They put people there and said, you're ruling yourself. Just keep the lines of trade open and, and we're all good. So the next yeah. phase of that Rhodes might've seen is like, we have to tell these people they're ruling themselves, but the way we're going to actually be the ones to influence is by telling them that the morally superior style is social democracy, that you use English. And of course, we're going to have a massive advantage if we understand how to manipulate this 
like that democratic illusion as well as have everybody speak English, but we can't say we're an empire dominating you. I mean, the U.S. does that too, right. probably as an arm of the English right. empire, maybe. And they don't say they're an empire. You just realize it once it happens to you. Absolutely. And they'll put a few Freemasonic lodges in the country and get the elite initiated. And then they're under total secrecy, bound by secret blood oath. And uh, they, corrupt, they corrupt a few elites that they give the power to, democratic power. And they're just brilliant at it, just absolutely brilliant. And it's, it's worked like a charm until, you know, and that's why they're going after Russia, because they've always wanted Russia, uh, because it's so big. And it's always kind of been a thorn in the Brit side that they can't, they, they can't get control of Russia. They, they engineered, I think, they engineered the communist revolution there. I would agree with that. There's, there's and, some evidence for that. And Germany, too, has been a little less dominatable. They could have an alliance with yeah. Russia. It's always competition right. for Germany. Now, I think that we, that this Olaf Scholz- The Guido Preparata. Yes. Yeah. And, I, and I think that right now True. we've dominated Germany with this latest guy- Better yes. than we ever have. Even Merkel could not yeah. be dominated the way this guy is dominated. But yeah. so does Chucky Three know his own history? Does he? Does Chucky how much does he three. know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's he knows. I think Elizabeth knew. Absolutely, he's so into World Economic Forum. He's so into this global warming. Global warming. We need global solutions. You know, we want to control everything. We want to control your carbon footprint. And his dad was a eugenicist. And I feel like you're, these guys are highly, I think yeah. they're highly influenced by their fathers, really more than even in your ordinary where you're just like, hey, dad, I make more money than you. Take a hike. You know, I don't think it works that way with these intergenerational elite. Yeah, the eugenics came out of England. I mean, it just fits perfectly with, there's Gnosticism, which we haven't even touched on yet, but Gnostics believe they are superior to non-Gnostics because they have special knowledge. And they kind of don't really care about the non-Gnostics because they're just boring, regular people who don't know about the God beyond God. See. So it really fits in with the whole eugenics thing and the superiority thing that, of course, fits with royalty. And the royals think they're fundamentally better than anyone else because of their royal blood. And that would explain why they could get away with treating as subhuman the Irish, because the Irish had yes. been uh, Christianized yes. long before. And usually the narrative yeah. is, just like with abortion, like the narrative is, this is not a person, so you don't yeah. have to respect them. You can enslave them. You can kill them. You can steal from them. But right. Ireland was Christian, so they can't have had yeah. that moral compass. It had to have been something else. And this Gnosticism thing, occultism, even Satanism, yeah. would yeah. justify this in a way that, that what they what is on the face would not. Absolutely. So it kind of proves it's not white supremacy. It's just supremacy. <laughs> I don't care what color you are. Right. <laughs> are you in the club or not? And you can get in the club, you know, by birth or by being brilliant. And I think they, I think the Freemasons who aren't all bad and just because you're a Freemason doesn't mean you're in on it or you're even a Gnostic or you're part of this 
system, but it's a feeder system where if you fit in well, you can be invited in to further initiations. You make more donations and you give more money, but you, you're, you're kind of pulled in to the deeper level, to the inside, inside club until you're, you know, in eyes wide shut territory. You get invited to those kinds of things, which I think is real. Many are called, I but few that... are chosen. <laughs> I think those kind of initiations cement cement the club together. That they're so intense, like what happens at those things. That it's a it's a it's a mind control. It's a form of mind control internal for the club. Did you ever see that woman? She's Danish. It's like a ninety-minute thing by the international court. You know, it's not. It's not a. It's not a court that anyone recognizes. I recognize it, but they investigate these kind of crimes. And she talks about as a child, she had to conduct, participate in human hunting parties that were held oh, by God. her parents and this this group, which included cardinals. There might have even been a pope there, and she and the other children would. Uh, run around and be chased. And then if these guys were supposed to have sex with these children, and if they didn't, they were killed publicly there. And that weeded out the people wow. who they couldn't trust in the secret society. And at the same time, it got them all to bond in this other way. And she said, see, now I would never believe any of these stories, but her testimony yeah. is so riveting and compelling. And like her, yeah. her, um, her emotion is so authentic. I've never, I have no question that she, it's true unless, wow. you know, so, wow. but this is now, you know, this was when she yeah. was a child and she's probably in her sixties, but yeah, so I'll put wow. that in the show notes for people who are interested, but it's very, very disturbing. That's so disturbing. But this what's, is, what's her name? Um, I'll, I'll look it up while we're talking, but the, okay. but yeah. Okay, cool. But, That's all right. But you were saying that this yeah. is a way that they bond and it's not just, bond. it's both, yeah. both an emotional bond, but it's also, you know, a blackmail kind of thing. It's a carrot and a stick. I yes. Think. They get the blackmail at the same time. And it seems to always involve small children. And that's where the, this kind of malevolent Gnosticism comes in because they think the world is an evil place. Gnostics think that the creator God, Yahweh, or whoever you think created the world, created the world as a prison to trap their souls here. So it's okay to defile creation in homage to the God beyond God that they believe is so distant, he's not concerned with life on earth and their job is to overthrow this prison system. They literally believe this. Every not, that's the one thing that holds all these wildly different Gnostic groups together is this idea that Earth is a prison. And it's, uh, it gets pretty crazy because it will allow you to do anything you want because there's nothing sacred about anything on Earth except your fellow Gnostics who have the secret knowledge to this God beyond God. It's really, really crazy. How does that fold into the space program? Yeah, they want to do a breakaway civilization. Francis Bacon actually says in his most famous work of philosophy called Novum Organum that it's a worthy goal and not even uh, ambitious in a, in a crude sense to want to conquer the universe. They really think they can conquer the universe. 
That's really what the science is all about. So Francis Bacon, I didn't even mention this. This whole enlightenment thing is because he invented modern science. He cheerleaded for it. He asked for people to do research and gather data and invented this new way of thinking, quote, air quotes, called inductive reasoning. And that's what supposedly began the enlightenment was this new way of, of doing science, which he insisted on, which then happened. The Royal Society of London was formed a few years after his death, and <clears throat> they were dedicated to science, and they called Francis Bacon their originator. So he's the reason we have modern science today, which has changed our life in myriad of ways, and which is now concerned with supposedly trying to go to Mars and create, you know, human embryos out of chemicals in a lab. Like they're really trying to do that. They really want to control all of life. And that's what the Rosicrucians wanted. They want to control over life and death, which is what? That's God. They want to be God. It's this kind of massive jealousy trip, uh, ego trip, uh, victim trip, the ultimate kind of like uh, persecution syndrome. Do they know that? But it's you crazy. think that Chucky three knows this, like he, that he know because his father said that thing, like I'd like to come back as a virus to kill human virus. beings. I mean, that folds right into what you're saying, so. but do they, do I, they get I together in their I little think... aprons and say, high five each other for, you know, job well done when something cool happens, I... like transgender kids or whatever. Must be something like that. I mean, I think he knows. I absolutely think he knows. I think that's what he wants. He feels him and his group are the superior ones destined to rule the earth. I don't think it's that uncommon. I think that's what the Nazis thought. Uh, maybe some people in Rome thought that back in the day. Like, why did they try to take over the whole world? Why do people try to conquer the planet? You know, they want the planet to be theirs, and they don't all maybe... Maybe some think they're doing it for God. These people are doing it against God, which is why they're so, so vicious and why they're so focused on the science. Because as Francis Bacon said, knowledge is power. You know, they want power. They want all this knowledge and they're putting so much money into science. Which, and now they're controlling yeah. us with the science. Which, you know, science is the new religion. So there was a program under Bush that they it came on so much scrutiny that it had to go underground called total information aware awareness and the logo, the right. motto, you should see right. the picture picture is like, um, like a, a pyramid with an eyeball on top and the eyeball <laughs> has like a beam of like seeing yeah. and the globe, the earth is at the other end of the beam. And the motto is scientia as potentia, which is knowledge yeah. is power. But so it's not yeah. just the science, though. I mean, I think the connection that really blew my mind is that you're talking about is the propaganda aspect of Shakespeare and how that connects yeah. to to what I'm seeing. Like I was trying I was just trying yeah. to get my mind around the level of propaganda, because like at this point, which happened like during my awareness, like in the past 10 years, 
nothing is real, like nothing. So it used yeah. to be the internet was yeah. a limited hangout. You could get what you needed out of it. And some, yeah. most people didn't even look that deeply or you could watch the news and, you know, John Stewart would joke about George Bush, you know, but then he just stopped yeah. and he was like, I'm not doing that anymore because if I laugh at this guy, it will humanize him. And I'm not even going to like, there's no humor. There's nothing. It's all mind control propaganda at this point. If it's, you know, not this conversation, but if it's making it to the mainstream, it's there for a reason. There's no room for anything yes. else and they don't have to do it. And yeah. I just, I've been trying to figure out like, what were the turning points? I started with radio. You're telling me Shakespeare, maybe the Greeks, obviously yeah. now that you mention it, talk to me. Yeah. I think that almost, almost anything, not everything, because they don't have total control. But most of what gets famous and what gets put in front of you is controlled and created by this, this system that creates stars and culture creation and social engineering. And I think, um, you know, to move it into the modern era, I think the work of Dave McGowan, who I think is kind of a genius, when he exposed that the hippie movement was created by people within the intelligence agencies, I think he started something that that he's got a few modern counterparts are are working on now that are showing how how fake so much of the entertainment is today. Not all of it. I think I think there is room. They're not in total control. I think they're too smart to realize that they can't actually control everything. They have to let things right. happen spontaneously and organically and then try to co-opt it after it grows because ultimately they know that the royals don't come up with much that that it's the common folks that are the real geniuses it's like the matrix they, where they said we tried to yeah. create a perfect world but you wouldn't accept it <laughs> so they yeah. have to allow for those yeah. things to make it plausible yeah yeah they're real smart they're not they're not trying for absolute control i mean they are they just want Dominion. There's another favorite word of Francis Bacon's, dominion. Um, so I think that, you know, the social engineering and culture creation, which Shakespeare was even agreed to by Shakespearean scholars for those history plays that uh, raised the Tudor family to such great heights and kept them in power. You know, they're doing it again. They did it again with the 60s. And it's well known that the CIA spread all that LSD around you know, that I wound up taking as a teenager, uh, mostly to my detriment, and mushroom culture and psychedelics that are, just continues to kind of grow and permeate our culture. Uh, they knew was connected to the Aztecs in Mexico who practice human sacrifice. They're going to make but mushrooms somehow, legal. Yeah. Yeah, and they're supposed to be spiritual. You know, or expand your consciousness. Like, what does that mean? And what about that ayahuasca? Ayahuasca is supposed to make you see God and God's a woman. Have you heard that? Like people say it's... Ayahuasca is slightly different. Okay. Uh, but, I mean, there's good things about mushrooms too. I guess there's good things about LSD. But used in a non-medical setting, they can really mess people up. They can really screw you up. They can... It can make you go crazy. But there are good things about all of these things if they're done with a certain intent. But basically, they just make you want to do more of them. And you kind of lose connection to, quote unquote, the real world. And you're certainly not going to go from a 
a, a mushroom session to a city council meeting, you know, and run for city council or try to actually get into the boring nuts and bolts of political life, well, day to day life. That's what I always thought the dead was about the tune in, tune out, yeah. whatever. It was yeah. really to neutralize this yeah. huge population boom. Yeah. And yeah. I'm watching Long Strange Trip, which is, I think, is it Oliver Stone or Martin Scorsese, whatever. It's a series on that's free on Prime right now. I've seen it. And yeah. I'm watching it. I'm only like a couple in, but they're, they're just like, they were just all about fun. They were just all about fun. Yep. They were just, you would try to yep. do something and they didn't really, I don't think they really wanted to make it big. I think they wanted to go from town to town. I don't think they wanted to make commercial success where they were just selling albums. They wanted you to have to go. And then take the yeah. S or whatever. Theater. And I was talking to yeah. a guy who was a manager for a rap band. I don't know what rap it was, but I rapper it was, but it was in it was a first class seat. The guy was sitting next to me. I'm positive now in retrospect that he was an undercover cop. But what he was mm. saying was that because he was speaking really low, I could not hardly hear him. And he had a beard and mustache. And he said they thought he was a cop. And I'm like, you're definitely a cop. I mean, I think in back, but what he was saying was they go from town to town and their big money is in the like troubadours of drugs that go with them. They have like mm -hmm. traveling minstrels who are just there with the drugs. And mm -hmm. that's why they like to have the concerts because they make more money selling drugs. to the people. Now, I don't know if that's true. I'm just saying that is what wow. this guy told me. And the reason it rang true only now, years later, was when I was watching The Dead Thing and they were like, why wouldn't he give me an album that would really sell? Why, when we tried to make this like a documentary, they they dosed the film crew, so the movie never wow. got made. So they actually intentionally, I think, suppressed that kind of megastardom so that they could physically be there. Because if you can't physically be there, you can't hand out the tabs. Interesting. That was my thought. But yes, I felt it was about is, neutralizing them. Totally, totally. I mean, it's the navel-gazing and it wasn't just fun. It was fun, but it was also you sort of felt like you were being revolutionary. You were making the world better. You're expanding your consciousness. It was spiritual. And it did have some positive effects like, you know, some of the herbalism movement and botanical medicine and organic farming came out of that group. It was already there. It was already in America, but it did kind of lead to some positive changes because they they did take some chances doing this i think they knew it would result in this you know disassociation and, and disengagement from the nuts and bolts of day-to-day -day politics of running a city or running a state which is really boring and tedious so you could get high and dance and you know grow vegetables or whatever in fact there's a book that proves that lsd was was known as this kind of counter-revolutionary or revolutionary force called St. Peter Snow. It's a fascinating novel that predates Albert Hoffman's discovery of LSD. How is and that also possible? They kind of, because I think that's a cover story, Albert Hoffman's oh, discovery oh, of LSD. Oh, wow. Yeah, but they are, it was already there. And they kind of knew it was going to lead to ultimately this kind of socialist revolution that's what happens in the novel saint peter snow where they wanted it to liberate people and make them better people but it turned them into kind of like raging communist types which is kind of what's going on now <laughs> right. with the woke revolution right these kids are running around throwing tomato soup on van gogh paintings because 
you know, they want us all to just stay home and not burn any carbon. But they're vaccinated. They're, they're, that... they're, they're like adamant <laughs> about making sure big pharma sells the, their shots to you. They're vaccinated in mass. That's what they're using. Yeah. The, the taxes they're promoting is to buy everybody right. a jab. Because... Because science, right. right? Science tells Trust you. Trust the science. Don't question the science. Trust the, Trust science. the science. Science will win. It's incredible. So that all came out of Bacon to event. You know, he didn't plan it, but knowledge is power. So you fake the knowledge and take the power. And uh, very few entertainers, musicians have challenged them. Very few politicians have. But a few more politicians have challenged them. Than entertainers or musicians, and, and like we said, I think before we went on the air, none of these freedom-loving, anarchy-loving, Grateful Deadheads challenge the mask mandate, or the no travel mandate, or the stay-at-home. Like, how can or you the lock jab. down a Deadhead? Oh, definitely not. Yeah, the definitely. Jab. Not. I mean, they're the worst. The hippies and the organic granola bunch and the art crowd, in my estimation have almost been the worst about masking. Like you couldn't go in an art gallery in New York City unless you, you know, had your Vax pass and your mask on. And they're still kind of like that. They're like, you'd think they would be the smartest and the most freedom loving and the most opposed to this. But no, it was the truck drivers and the mechanics and the maids and the nurses. I think they did... It could have been deep. It could have been easy to see from far away. But if you read the 2017 SPARS document on the Johns Hopkins website about them, it's basically a script of a novel coronavirus and how, yeah. you know, it's like different chapters of different propaganda moments. It was really, a, it was a media guide, like a propaganda guide more than anything else, for sure. If you read it, I think you'll agree with me. And uh, at one point they say, if the president advocates for this therapeutic, the other party, the opposing party to that president will advocate against it. That's just how it's going to work. So we're, we have to decide which side of the aisle on this item the president's going to be. And I feel like they decided to give it to Democrats, either because they think it's more people or because they felt that they would be more adamantly committed to it, more like underneath it all, more fascist in their desire, yeah. you know, their, their willingness to want to supersede your free will because it's a collectivist yeah. thing. I feel like it was very, yeah. very deliberate. Now they could have just not associated yeah. it with a party, but then they might not have gotten 50% compliance right out of the gate by, by associating yeah. with the party. They were guaranteed 50%. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. It was brilliant. Yeah. So you would think incredible. they were the open-minded people, but they weren't, they were, they were actually the people who were more easily led and more willing yeah. to oppress other people for it. And I don't know if you looked yep. back in the sixties and cause there are a lot of similarities and see if that, if that same personality type was the one who was actually open to the LSD thing. Like I don't, I can't circle yeah. that square or square that circle, whatever. Yeah, it's a tough one. But it, I, I bet there is, you know, or maybe they just, it's, maybe it's different people, you know, maybe it's like, it was like a flipping of the personality type that used to be Democrats and they're now maybe they're the Republicans. It's hard to say, but the, the hippie thing and the LX, LSD experience is very similar to the Gnostic experience because what the Gnostic would experience would be like a visionary episode where they experience these other worlds that gave them the gnosis or the knowledge. Gnosis means knowledge that this, this world was fake. This world was 
was false. And so now they had the special knowledge and they felt superior. And yeah, I mean, hippies kind of feel superior. Like they're living like that because you're wrong. You're destroying the earth and you're subjugating other peoples. And we're, we're living the pure good life. And if you get enough of them, they're going to want to tell you to stop living the way you're living. Stop driving your car. Stop living in a big house. You're destroying the earth. Which, as, an, as a 70s environmentalist, I used to believe too. But in fact, the Earth is in no trouble from global warming. Global warming is another fake science hoax. It's not happening, people. Read realclimatescience.com. Spend 45 minutes on that website. The polar bears are fine. The coral reefs are fine. The ice at the North Pole is practically back to normal. Yeah, warmth, light, CO2 and CO2. Right. Warmth, warmth, <laughs> sunlight. As what you know creates like evaporation, water, um, CO two, yeah. all of those things is what makes life flourish, and that's why I think that's why they are against it. Whereas an ice age would be terrible, like that would be absolutely well, that's, terrible. And if they start spraying, yeah, look at Snowpiercer, the first minute yeah. of Snowpiercer, they just yeah. show the chemtrails <laughs> destroying the world. But that's what Gnostics try to do. They try to invert the natural order of the world because they disagree with the natural order of the world. So anytime they can invert it, which, you know, doing things to children or turn a man into a woman or it's an, and the inversion of reality is, is kind of their goal, which upsets the natural order, which increases their chance of, you know, taking power. So this is another inversion. Carbon is the most neutral compound on the periodic it's table. It's the stuff of life, it's central right? to life. Yeah. It means organic. They literally tell it's, us that that oil <laughs> is a fossil fuel based solely on their yeah. claim that all yeah. carbon yeah. is in life. Like there is no carbon outside yeah. of life, which can't be true and isn't true yeah. because diamonds are formed so far below the earth that it can't have started yeah. with a life form, but you're taught that. But yeah, so the carbon equals life. <laughs> well, no, carbon equals death. You want to control your carbon footprint where carbon is, is the key to life itself. And you kind of can't poison anything with carbon. It's such a joke. It's an inside joke. Your carbon footprint should be big. It should be good. Carbon is good. Carbon can't, almost can't be poisoned. And it's highly regressive because it's it's just like when they want to get rid of Section Two Thirty. It's you it those kind of regulatory barriers to entry to completely uh, insulate the incumbent from new entrants. So if you and and the right. third world has always said like, can you wait yeah. on your climate regulations yeah. until? <laughs> We get a foot in the Do we have door. A yeah, exactly. And then, and now, one thing that just makes me sick, and I've seen it in every one of these initiatives that I've looked into, including like the there was an organization of the Americas here and Kamala Harris, and there was like these initiatives they were pushing. If you scratch the surface on those initiatives, they always say in those countries, they go to these third world countries, they get their captive leadership, they tell them to implement these sustainability goals, and they yeah. have them. Uh, morph from being given some funding for it 
to uh, it's always included. This needs to be incorporated into their budget going forward. They need to use tax dollars for it. They need to borrow money for it. They cannot, we are not going to finance this and they could finance it. They could finance it if they wanted to, they finance so much, but they want, I believe it is meant to lock in this pyramidal relationship with the, you know, brown and black people in the world to make yeah. sure that they are, have to stay in their place. Absolutely. It's a win-win It's too absorbable to surplus, like progressive taxation. And yeah. it's almost like yeah. tautological. It's almost like connected. The more progress you make, the more your carbon sustainability costs will be. Like it will always absorb yeah. all the surplus because yeah. it is the source of the surplus. Yeah. Yeah. Really good way of looking at it. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's all about control. They want to they want to control everything. So, can we and, can we hit a little bit on um the drug thing like the the hallucinogenic castaneda like what it goes beyond the yeah, 60s, so right? That was the other thing was um these books came out late 60s, early 70s. I found one at a friend's house cuz his older brother had it. Uh, Carlos Castaneda, uh, Tales of Power, I think, a Yaki Way of Knowing. And it was all about the Native American thing, which I was very attracted to. And uh, taking drugs, which sounded like a lot of fun and a real adventure. And you'll break out of the structure of society and somehow it all was supposed to make the world a better place too in some way or another because you wouldn't be a stuffy hidebound republican trying to make money on wall street you were going to be free and artistic and creative or something i don't even know but it sure made it look like something you wanted to do was try these drugs and sure enough i did but it turns out that carlos castaneda was a cia asset and the, all the books were fake despite so many kind of hip and smart people thinking they were real, thinking they were a pathway to a better life. Just book after book, anthropologists and psychologists would refer to this Don Juan and his, his extended knowledge. And they were well-written, but they were obviously a hoax, to some people. And you always read, as you're reading it, you had to wonder like, is this real? I don't, I don't think this is real. Like by the time I read the fourth book, I said, if he writes another book, it's a hoax because this is done. He said everything, but it encouraged a lot of people to take drugs, which as we know, the CIA was heavily involved with pushing LSD and they were pushing mushrooms too, as uh, Jan Irvin has disclosed on his brilliant work with uh, Albert Hoffman and uh, the mushroom guy uh, down in Mexico. And Hans Utter did great work with Waking the Dead, exposing the Grateful Dead. And I think it was Jason Horsley that turned me on to this Castaneda thing. And Castaneda's girlfriend wrote a book called uh, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Oh, yeah, for sure. He, Amy, somebody's the daughter of a great writer who got involved in the Castaneda cult. And he was basically running a cult in L.A. and making these stories up and got literally millions of people kind of in on this 
total hoax, which is par for the course. Like Madame Blavatsky was a hoax. I remember Scientology a on hoax. Castaneda. I remember when uh, I was a waitress in the eighties. Uh, yeah. Somebody gave me one of those books, yeah. like it was still going strong, yeah. and she was like yeah. a hippie chick, and she was into it, and it was just kind of yeah. gobbledygooky to me, like it wasn't my cup of tea. Yeah, but yeah. it was. She was a hundred. She was just like, it's wonderful. It will change your life. Yeah, and yeah, it seems real if when you're young and adventurous, and like, why not try it? But it was a complete hoax. Turns out the Kabbalah was a hoax. Like this really? is what they do. What is the Kabbalah? Was written as a hoax. What is it? Kabbalah is quote unquote Jewish mysticism, but it's very much tied up with Gnosticism, uh, Neoplatonism, uh, Gematria, and it's not really Jewish. It right. Has I don't. Nothing yeah. to do with the Bible. It has nothing to do with the Bible, but certain Jews took it and kind of tried to make sense out of the Bible with it. Because the Bible, after a while, gets kind of boring, and the Greeks have all this, like, math and science and poetry and, and music, and the Jews got to have, like, stories. But Madonna and Ashton Kutcher and stuff, like these... Well, that's because the Kabbalah is not right. that. The Kabbalah is, like, crazy and rich and adventurous and, and nutty and filled with flights of fancy and all this otherworldly mystical magical things happening that it just captivates people and it was written in the 13th century in spain but was said to be from a second century rabbi so right off the bat it was a hoax oh yeah look at this ancient wisdom it's second century wisdom which was a great time in judaism when the, the talmud was being written and it's very very important to judaism is the talmud which adds to the torah so the Kabbalah kind of is this third oh. aspect of Judaism. If you think of the Torah, the Talmud, and the Kabbalah. And the Kabbalah is really weird. <laughs> and it immediately makes people think they're the Messiah. So the Jews got kicked out of Spain, which was a horrible tragedy. And the Kabbalah came to Europe and back to the Middle East, where it started to get popular. And this writer, Francis Yates, who's considered the, the best writer on the Renaissance and early modern London, she credits the Kabbalah with starting the Renaissance, that it came early, late, early 14th century, no, early 15th century to Florence, your Marsilio uh, uh, Ficino and Pico della Mirandola, who studied it, and it kind of opened up ideas about god and life because it wasn't hidebound it was it was also combined with hermeticism and neoplatonism and the greeks all this stuff came together with the kabbalah to start the renaissance and kind of loosen the grip of the dark ages and the the kind of hidebound catholic church so it's tied in with that but it also went to the middle east where this guy uh ari the lion uh, Isaac Luria studied it, and he started to think he was the Messiah. And then his student, Sabbatai Savi, studied it, and he believed he was the Messiah, and millions and millions of Jews believed he was the Messiah. Like, it really literally drove him crazy and drove millions of people crazy believing that this guy was the Messiah. 
and he was an antinomian. He was like a Gnostic because the Kabbalah is in many ways Gnostic because it makes you feel like you have special knowledge and it has Gnostic roots, but it doesn't have to be Gnostic. It gets complicated, but it drives people crazy. And this, the story of Sabbatai Sabi, I don't, I don't want to go into it, but he thought he was the Messiah. And then from there, it went to this guy, Jakob Frank, who took over from Sabbatai Sabi, and he was really crazy. And there's a lot of dark stories with Jakob Frank and it just gets all really weird, but it's all kind of tied with the Kabbalah and, and the Kabbalah was a big part of Rosicrucianism and part of Freemasonry. And it always seems to be there in any kind of a cult thing now. And it, it came back in the eighties and nineties and everybody's doing Kabbalah because you think you're going to gain special knowledge. It promises hints of other worlds and special powers and, that's what all these cults seem to offer you. You're going to get special powers. Like I said, the Rosicrucians wanted to live forever. And that's kind of what science is about now. We're going to get special powers. We're, gonna, we're not going to have to die. And that is the new thing. People think they can live forever. This whole Kurzweil thing. And, in your research, uh, it's all tied in together. your research, <laughs> have you ever come upon what you consider to be evidence of actual power resulting from these occult practices? No, I think what it gives people, this is what I think is a hypnotic power, a self-confidence. First of all, you join a group. So you feel confident because we all need to be a part of something. We all need an identity and we all need to have a purpose in life. And it gives you all those three things. So you gain confidence and then you do these rituals and you gain even more confidence. It's a form of hypnosis and self-hypnosis. I think that's what exists. And I think, I do believe that you help create your life with your thoughts and feelings. So it cements and organizes your thoughts and feelings in a certain direction. In this case, taking over the planet as a whole group. And so it starts to work. Right. Just like you would in your life, right. if you want to become a broadcaster and you focus on that, you're going to make it right. happen. And if I burn Magical candles to that happen. effect or pray, it's not going to hurt. Uh, I like praying. So <laughs> praying and it focuses your mind. So their their minds get very well. And focused by these so rituals. you would have confidence in yourself, but you could also get yeah. confidence in others, both because they believe yes. in the ritual and because you have confidence. Yes. Yep. And you have a right, group. And then that, and you and that you help will each validate other. because then it works. So I think, yeah. did I tell you this last time that like people talk about revelation of the method because they yeah. somehow have a moral obligation to let you know. I actually, that never rang true to yeah. me. I don't believe that's what it is. Uh -huh. What I actually think it is, is that they are telling each other the way Babe Ruth points to where the ball's going to go so that yeah. when it happens, they get credit for it. But it's not yeah. for you. It's, and, and maybe it is for yeah. you. Maybe it's for you to resign yourself to the future that they are laying out before you. And, yeah. and like you feel hopeless and helpless against it because it, yeah. it's so reinforcing yeah. because when it actually does happen, then you feel even more demoralized and their friends are even more impressed and then their followers are even more loyal. And it's, it's quite, it, you know, it's elegant. And if it started... 
500 years ago or whatever, and it's carried through by things like Shakespeare and the royal family and a hidden empire, then it, it will, it will have power. Just, I mean, I don't like to make this analogy, but the Catholic church was very powerful in Europe. And you could say that some of those elements, you know, could contribute to that. I would not say that (laughs) I could not possibly comment, but yeah. Interesting. It's just a it's an interesting way to look at it. Um, wow. Okay. So what what else do we before we wrap? Like, what should we hit? I mean, I know that that some of the Castaneda stuff moved into uh, human ecology movement. I know that was something that was on your mind, and yeah, people called him out in real time, which probably shout those guys. Oh out. yeah. I mean, there's just so much to talk about with this uh, British Empire. Shakespeare and science thing. Well, I do. If people do want to follow up on the Castaneda thing, I think you were saying that um, Jason Horsley, what did Jason Horsley have to say about it? And Joyce Carol Oates. Uh, I forget where I found out about the Joyce Carol Oates that she, she realizes Castaneda was a hoax right away. Horsley does great research into the occult and he discovered uh Castaneda's ties to the CIA because he goes pretty deep. He does a lot of stuff on um right. pedophilia and right. stuff. And he's got I want to shout out to these guys. He's inspired these guys called Psyop Cinema. Really? Who are detailing this stuff in real time. So they're taking this whole idea of, of social engineering via Hollywood and analyzing current movies in the last 20 or 30 years as kind of part of this social control, social conditioning thing. They're really good. And then of course there's um, the occult and popular culture with the great uh, Adam Weishaupt. Isaac Weishaupt. I had him on my show. The one. Yeah. Did you really? The the current one, not the original one. He's (laughs) current. He's like pop culture. And are you saying that he wrote a book? Um, he's written a whole. Right. Bunch What's of the books. book that you just referenced? Uh, the pop culture, the occult and culture, or something. Oh, that's the name of his. Podcast. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. He, mm-hmm. he just changed the name of his podcast right. to the occult and popular culture. The other one's called Psyop right, Cinema. Right. Okay. They're focused on right. movies. I'll put that stuff in the show. They're more notes. intellectual. Isaac is more current right. events as they as they happen unfolding. He shows the occult connections. Uh, Horsley's more like deep intellectual. So there's this, and I think it all came out of Dave McGowan, frankly, when he discovered the sixties. So there's this, there is a flowering of this movement and an awareness of what's going on and an awareness of popular culture and how insidiously pulls you into the program. Sometimes blatantly, sometimes in a brilliantly like hidden and mischievous way. Like it doesn't have to be propaganda, but it gets you at least not thinking about other things, but focused in a certain direction. I haven't actually figured it out, but part of it is just to have entertainment, you know, keep the masses entertained. It doesn't have to have a secret message that, you know, war is good and America is great, but a lot of it does yeah, have But it that. could just even waste Once your you time. you start to see just it. Wait, you know, just like just drugs, it's a plug-in time. drug. Exactly. It's a plug-in drug. Keep keep the masses entertained. And some of it's great. And uh, the occult inspires some great art 
you know, over the centuries. You often find occult connections or it was made for occult reasons. And it is still good art, like Shakespeare. Some of it's bad. We're just told that it's good. But there is some great poetry in there that was inspired for, you know, occult reasons. So it's all very interesting. It all gets very complex and uh, endlessly fascinating. So, and I want to yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's my you. pleasure to, to talk to you. Are you, um, is your next episode going to be on Kabbalah? It's going to okay. mention it and okay. mention that I'm not ready to do a whole episode. <laughs> okay. And I'm going to... I'm going to talk about the crazy synchronicity that got me going down this path. Okay. And what is that? And how is that related to magic and are angels and demons when, real? When are can we going to hear this one? Can they control yeah, demons? Yeah, when are we going to hear this one? Uh, soon. soon. Very okay, soon. excellent. All right. Thank you so much, yes. Robert. I have uh, taken you. enough of your time. That was so awesome. People are going to love it. Um, and. I hope so. If you just, uh, your podcast is the Hidden Life is Best podcast on yes. everybody's favorite podcasting platform. There's no video, yep. right? So that's it? No, just just my voice. But that's Sorry. totally fantastic. Camera uh, shot. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. This has been Deep Dives with Monica Perez. Thank you.